I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From PRI, Public Radio International, it's... Live Recorded in front of a live audience at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire. With comedian Nicole Byer, scientist Dr. Embryon Hyde, former NBA star Terry Porter, with music from David Bazan, and our fabulous house band. And now, the host of Livewire, he's going with his gut, despite all Wow. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, everybody, for coming out here to the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. We have got a fun and fascinating hour for you. Uh, we have NBA legend Terry Porter here. We've also got, from MTV, the hilarious Nicole Byer is here. And we've got... We've got a doctor to class the show up. Her name is Dr. Embriette Hyde, and her area of expertise is the gut, which is why we've picked the theme gut instinct for this hour. Now, you guys are fans of digestive systems. I think that's, that's a good sign here early in the show. You know, there's a lot of research uh, that's emerging that says that our gut really does actually weirdly know stuff. You know what I mean? Like, we should probably trust our gut on more occasions than maybe we do. And I'm not trying to question that science, but I do not think that applies to my life. Because my gut is dead wrong roughly 100% of the time. (laughs) A perfect example would be this morning, I was getting ready to come down to do the show. I actually live in Washington State. So... I was trying to figure out which, we have two cars. One of them is nicer and newer, and one of them is, as we would say when I was a kid, a stone-cold beater. It is a Toyota 4Runner with a quarter of a million miles on it. Everything is breaking down on the car. It's the kind of car that when you take it into the mechanic, they say, we can't save it, we just have to make it comfortable for the last few months before it crosses over. So I I was trying to decide which car I wanted to take, and my gut said, take the nicer car. 
because it'll be more comfortable. It will reliably deliver you to Portland. So I told my wife, hey, would it be cool if I took the nicer car because I'm going to have to make this drive down there? And she said, sure, that's no problem. So I'm on Interstate 5. I'm heading down here, and I'm feeling really good about myself. Like I won that negotiation with my wife, which is rare. <laughs> I'm listening to my tunes on the radio. Everything's good. And then I come over a hill, and I look to my right, and there is a Washington State Patrol officer set up on the side of the road with the radar gun. And I zoom past, and I'm thinking, maybe he didn't notice me. <laughs> but then he starts driving behind me, so I'm like, he might have noticed me. And then he turns on his flashing lights, and I'm like, he probably noticed me. And then he says through the loudspeaker, pull over to the right side of the road. I was like, he definitely noticed me. So the irony in this is that if I would have ignored my gut, I wouldn't be in this situation, okay? Because my gut said, take the nicer car. If I would have taken the Toyota, this could have been avoided because the Toyota cannot go faster than 60 miles an hour. It cannot achieve a speed great. Like if you dropped it out of an airplane, it would stop at like 58 miles an hour. It's a very safe vehicle in that it cannot go fast enough for you to get hurt while driving it. So I'm on the side of the road, the dude comes up and does like license and registration. He starts lecturing me about this particular piece of freeway that I was driving on and about how dangerous it is. And he says, if you look at that hill you just came down, there's all these skid marks on that hill. And my thought was, no S, Sherlock. They realized they were driving into a speed trap <laughs> and they slammed on their brakes. You are definitely making this more dangerous than it would otherwise be. But he's like, doing that kind of cop-splaining, I don't know if that's a word, but let's start it here on this episode of Livewire. He's totally cop-splaining to me, and my gut is like, just let him have this because maybe he'll just give me a warning. Maybe he'll give me this whole talk and lecture, but then that will be it. So I'm listening, yes, oh, absolutely, sir. At one point, he said something like, yeah, we sit up here all day and we just give out tickets all day, which is, I think, a bad thing, but my response was, right on. I don't even say right on ever in my life. That's probably the second time in my life I've said right on. I don't know, that was my response to the fact that you are, I should mention too, I'm not trying to litigate this on public radio, but I will mention that I was going 70, the speed limit there was 60. It is a one mile stretch of Interstate 5 that is 60 miles an hour. There, I don't know how far it is from the Canadian border to Mexico, let's call it a couple thousand miles. One mile of those 2,000 miles is 60, the speed limit drops down to 60, and that was the one I was on. But I'm sitting there and he, he, he's talking to me and then he gets my stuff and he goes back to his car and he comes back and he gives me a ticket. And I am like furious now because my gut was telling me to play it cool, to listen to his whole explanation about how I should be a better driver, et cetera. And now I'm still getting the ticket. And I feel like legally, if you're a state patrol officer, you should be allowed to give out a ticket or a lecture. <laughs> but not both. So... I don't know, I don't have a plan for fixing this. I'm going to probably do a Kickstarter after the show or something, <laughs> some kind of uh, GoFundMe. So if you guys could help me out with that, I would appreciate it. We do have to get going with the actual thing we're here to talk about, which is gut instincts on this edition of Livewire. I want to tell you about Nicole Byer. She came to the attention of a lot of folks as part of MTV's show Girl Code, 
But then she decided that she wanted to try something else. So she basically trusted her gut and walked away, telling MTV that she wanted her own scripted comedy. MTV said yes, and the result is the ridiculously funny show, Loosely Exactly Nicole. It is my new favorite TV show, and I'm sure it is not aimed at 40-year-old dads, but I don't even care. Please welcome Nicole Byer to Livewire. Put my beer. Right here. Right here. Right here. Okay. Do you want to scoot over so you're closer to it yes, so you can reach it? Yeah, let me get close to you. You just said yes. Yeah, I say it all the time. It's very annoying. I don't know if I can pull off yes, yes at you age can. 40. Here. Can I? Just Let's, go, yes. 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 <laughs> no. I liked it. Thank you. Nicole, welcome to Livewire. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I have to say that when I started watching your new show, I was like, this will be for the young people. (laughs) This will be something I don't fully understand because I'm 40 years old. I probably don't watch a ton of MTV, but I could not stop watching it. It's so funny. It is so good. Thank you so much. Thanks. We worked really hard on it. So your show is called Loosely Exactly Nicole, and Mm -hmm. it appears to be extremely autobiographical. Um, Can we assume that this character is just basically you? More or less, yeah, it's like me in my early 20s, where I was just kind of like a mess and drank a lot and had a lot of sexual relations with people. Great use of public radio terminology. Thank we do appreciate you. I'm that. trying. How do you feel about having that part of your life out there on television? Because your character definitely comes off as a pretty careless person. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm a pretty careless person myself. So like, I truly don't mind anything I've done. If I'm ashamed of it, I probably shouldn't have done it. So I'm not ashamed of anything I've done. I've had a very silly life and I want to share it with everybody. Um, I read that you said that this guy who's kind of your love interest in the first season is based on a real person you dated pretty recently. Yeah, that relationship ended in December. And I said, let's throw it on TV. Truly, he was like not good. It was on and off for three years. He was a terrible person. I have the last laugh because now it's on television and people are seeing it. Also, the name is super close to his actual name. Really? Yeah. His name is Derek and his name begins with a D. It's so close. Like we didn't even try. Has, has this person reached out to you? Like, uh, hey, what, what's no, going on? No, because that would be wild of him to assume it's him. That'd be so narcissistic if you're like, is this me? And I could be like, no, but it is. It's definitely him. Well, if he listens to this, he'll, it'll be confirmation. We have Nicole Byer here. She has a new show on MTV called Loosely Exactly Nicole. <laughs> Nicole, stay right there. Okay. We have to take a short break, but we will be back with much more with Nicole Byer. Her new show is Loosely Exactly Nicole. This is Live Wire Radio. We'll be right back. Livewire is brought to you in part by Ergo Depot, advocates of active living and makers of the Jarvis sit-stand desk. It's the desk that I use on stage when I'm making Livewire radio. I was thinking about this the other day. You know, when we're kids, maybe one of the best parts about being a kid is running around, building forts, climbing trees, just being active. You know, you got the wiggles when you're a kid. But guess what? You still got those wiggles inside you even if you're an adult and you go to a job problem is a lot of those jobs involve sitting all day stop crushing your inner wiggles 
let them out by using great ergonomic furniture from Ergo Depot. It keeps you moving. It keeps you in motion. It lets you stay in touch with that young, vibrant, excited part of your being called the inner you. You can sit, you can stand, you can lean, you can stretch, you can walk, do all of those things with the great ergonomic stuff you can find over at Ergo Depot. Their website is very informative, and it's ergodepot.com. Head over there to find out more. Welcome back to LiveWire Radio from PRI. My name is Luke Burbank. We have Nicole Byer here. She has a new show on MTV. It's called Loosely Exactly Nicole. It is uh, very much based on at least a time in your life, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I also read that you have been to a lot of therapy, though. Oh, yeah. I love my therapist. Mary! Uh, Shout out and violation of the Hippocratic Oath. Oh, is it? I don't know. But I didn't say her last name. Also, they are the ones that take the oath. I don't think we... Oh, yeah, it's me. I can say whatever I want. So Mary's great. I love her very much. And it's like little old white ladies named Mary are trying to save me like one day at a time. So I have... <laughs> My therapist, and yesterday at the airport, I got there as the plane was boarding, and this little old white lady, Mary, was like, I'll help you, come on! And then she was like literally 100 years old, running up the escalator, dodging people. She's like, come on! So I love Mary's. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Has going to therapy affected your comedy at all? I guess because for, for most people, and it appears to be true watching sure. your show, doing comedy is really an outgrowth of whatever's really going on in your life. Mm -hmm. And if what's really going on is you're going to therapy, you're trying to like handle your emotional, mental business, mm -hmm. does that affect the kind of jokes that you make or the kind of scenes you write for your show? No, because I like live my life and then one day a week she goes, you're being ridiculous. And I go, <laughs> yes. And then I go back to living my life. <laughs> so it's sort of like a Catholic confession. You kind check of, in yeah. once a week. And then like every now and again, I'll be like, what did Mary say? Can't remember, gotta live. So she's like helpful, but not really. <laughs> <laughs> but you love going to her. Oh, I love her so much. Although she doesn't laugh at my jokes, which is like troublesome. Cause I'm like, do I need a therapist to talk about how my therapist doesn't laugh at my jokes? <laughs> but I like that she's honest. I love her so much. There is a certain kind of feeling if you're kind of a performing type person like you mm -hmm. are and like I am, where if you're in therapy, you want your therapist to think like, this is definitely my favorite client. <laughs> uh huh. Like. I charge the other people $200 an hour, but I would do these ones for free because Nicole and Luke are so fun. Uh, yeah, I would love that, but she charges me every week. <laughs> she charges me when I miss and don't give her ample time because I never do. Uh, but she's truly great. We just gab, gab, gab. <laughs> I pay this woman to be my friend. <laughs> yeah. All right, I first saw you on this uh, MTV show called Girl Code, yes. which for people that have not heard of the show can you try to even explain what it is okay so girl code is a talking head show which just means it's a uh, people sitting in front of a camera doing sound bites but like we talk about things that i guess are a little taboo like we talk about periods and stuff like that like just like women things that like i never heard of until like my mother was like you're gonna get something soon <laughs> and i'm like what what is it she's like just wait <laughs> and they're like no so I, I think it was helpful for some girls. But the mechanics of a show like that, we have Nicole Byer here. Her new show is Loosely Exactly Nicole. The mechanics of a show like Girl Code are really fascinating to me because, like you said, 
they bring you in. Mm-hmm. The, it's not shot like an episode of Friends where yep. like people are talking to each other. There's a narrative arc. The plot moves in a certain direction. You sit in front of a camera and some producer uh-huh. just asks you for your hot take yeah. on a bunch of random topics, mm-hmm. right? And then later you're in a bar somewhere and you see yourself on TV yeah, saying wild. the thing. Yeah. Uh, some girls actually write jokes because we do get like a beat sheet. So it'll be like two pages of questions and then like the direction that they want to go with it. Uh, so some girls write jokes. I tried and then I was like, too hard. So then I just go in real cold and they'll just ask me questions and I'll just talk until something funny happens and then they'll be like, oh, this, this is a good little sound bite. Why don't you just like rephrase it so it's not a rambling 20 minute answer? And that's how Girl Code is made. Yeah, that's how television's made. <laughs> um. Now, you pressed them, right? MTV, you were like, I want to have a scripted show. Yeah, because MTV has a lot of unscripted stuff. And once they like you, they'll use you for a lot of stuff. And then they kept asking me to do some unscripted things. And I was just like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to get locked in that zone. I don't want to be the host of a show. Uh, I want to do scripted stuff, and I'm not doing unscripted anymore. And they were like, okay. And then they're like, how about this? And I was like, no, you're not listening. I'm not. You can offer me a million dollars, and I won't do unscripted stuff. I don't want it. So then finally they were like, fine. Let's do a scripted show. Let's do it with you. Here was their idea. They were like, how about you're like a mess and you burn down your apartment and then you have to move in with your sister and she's got all these crazy kids. And I was like, okay. And then that's fine. I don't hate that. And then we shot it. Let me tell you, kids are awful. Even pretend kids? Pretend kids are the worst. Their novelty wears off after like 15 minutes. And we did a scene with a bus full of kids. Some of them are evil. Like one would just pop up behind me and go, <sighs> and I was like, why? Why are you doing this? And then another one was like, I'ma call you Miss Curly Head. And I was like, why? Cause I have curly hair. He was like, yeah. And for whatever reason that annoyed me so much. <laughs> Sounds like something you need to work out by talking to Mary. I guess. Oh, but anyway, so we shot the pilot, turned it in, MTV liked it, and then uh, they were like, let's, let's not have you in a situation, let's let you be the situation. They were like, let's have it be like Louis. And I was like, you don't, I'm not anything like Louis C.K., so that's not what you want. You want something that's in my voice and you're just using a buzzword. So uh, we decided to like base it on my life and then use like my, my comedy in it. Um, well, it came out really, really funny. Oh, thank you. Um, I was just wondering, this is, this is a boring but probably important question. Okay. Okay. Do you feel like the entertainment industry is making any progress when it comes to creating meaningful roles for people of color? Um, I mean, it's a really weird question, and it's a question I've gotten a whole bunch. My whole issue is there were so many roles for people of color back in, like, the late 90s, early t- Like, there was Moesha, The Parkers, Living Single, Martin, Jimmy Fox's show, uh, Sister, Sister, Family. Like, so many shows, Girlfriends. Like, and it just went away. And then now it's like, where's the diversity? And it's like, well, why isn't the question, where did it go? Like, why did it leave? Why did black shows go away? And then people are like, do you feel pressure being one of the only black females with a show? And I'm like, no, I just, I just want to make a funny show. And I don't speak for all the black people. Issa Rae doesn't speak for all the black women. Uh, Donald Glover doesn't speak for all the black men. I just think there just needs to be more voices. Okay. How does that happen, though? How does that happen? I think networks need to trust people of color. 
Uh, like someone asked you why I don't have a black showrunner. There's very few black showrunners. Do you want to describe what a showrunner oh, actually sure. does? Oh, sure. A showrunner is like uh, the person who shapes your show. Uh, they're essentially like a head writer, which is like all the scripts go through them before the network. And they're on set with you the whole time. In a way, they're like, a, I guess, the head coach of a football team. I don't really know sports. <laughs> That's, I think that was passable okay. as a sports reference. Cool. Uh, but yeah, there's like very few black showrunners at the level that MTV wanted somebody. So then I was like, it's important to me to have a woman. So it ended up being a nice white lady who listens to me. And I was like, and that's the key for me. I didn't want, you know, a showrunner that was like bulldozing me or being like, I know better than you. And it's like, how do you know better than me about my life? So I have this very wonderful white lady named Christine Zander, who I love so much. I thought her name would be Mary. <laughs> Oh, I would love for Mary to show run my show. Nicole, is that a good choice? I don't know, Mary! Which is all of our conversations. <laughs> Nicole Byer, the new show is loosely exactly Nicole. Thanks for coming on Livewire. Thank you so much! Our theme this week is gut instinct, and we asked the audience here at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, to tell us when their gut was wrong. They filled out these little cards. Those cards have been passed to me here on the stage. I'm going to share a few of them with you. Kim says, I went to a Luscious Jackson concert at La Luna way back in the 90s, and in my drunken state, I thought it was a good idea to throw my favorite one-of-a-kind necklace at the keyboard player. I miss that necklace to this day. But I did see her wearing it in a magazine spread, so I guess it was her new favorite. So never mind, good gut. Mark says, this is actually, this is very sweet. Mark says his gut was wrong when he divorced his wife. Fortunately, we worked our way back to each other. Congratulations, you two. Um, Luann, who's here at the Alberta Rose, says uh, her gut was wrong uh, when my husband moved to Portland in 1995 for work, and it took me two years to decide to move, I just did not think Portland could be as good as rural Indiana. <laughs> but you were wrong. All right, if you are doing a radio show and the theme is gut instinct, really, you can't find someone more on brand than our next guest. Dr. Embriette Hyde is project manager for the American Gut Project, which describes itself as one of the largest crowdsourced citizen science projects in the U.S. aimed at shedding light on the human microbiome. Here to tell us what the hell the human microbiome is, please welcome Dr. Embriette Hyde to Livewire. Dr. Hyde, welcome to Livewire. Thank you. Thank you. Um, let's start with the human microbiome. What is that? Yeah, so it's a really scary sounding word maybe, but it's not, it's not that scary. So the microbiome really refers to all of the microbes that are living in you and on you and their genes. Um, so what's really fascinating about the microbiome is that if you look at the DNA that is in our human body, 
you have human DNA and you have DNA that belongs to the bacteria that live inside of you. And the bacterial DNA outnumbers your own DNA, 360 to one, uh, which is just fantastic. If you think about it that way, you're like 1% human. Um, so. I've, I've had exes who told me I was that. And I don't think they knew anything about the human microbiome. Okay, so what is that microbiome doing? Oh, who knows? Right? I hope you. <laughs> you're a friggin' doctor. So, you study this stuff. So the microbiome does so many things that we do know and so many things that we don't know. Um, but some of the really important things that your microbes are doing for you are breaking down some of the foods that you're eating that your human cells can't. Uh, if you ever eat a, a meal high in fiber with lots of vegetables, you may get gassy afterwards. So your microbes are doing their job. The, the gas is mm. a sign that they're working? Yeah. How have we not evolved out of that? Like that seems like a, that seems like a suboptimal outcome. Evolution's not perfect. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so backstage, I was having a little meal before the show. I had six deviled eggs and more or less two ham sandwiches. What is happening in my gut at this very moment? Well, that food is still probably in your stomach. So what happens through the digestive process is, you've, maybe I've heard people tell you this, you need to chew your food really well. Well, they're not just trying to nag at you. It's true, you do. Because digestion really starts at the first point when you're chewing your food. So your saliva is full of an enzyme called amylase, and that will start breaking down all the starches in your food while you're chewing it. You swallow it, it goes down the tube to your stomach, and then you have acids and other enzymes in your stomach that start breaking down the proteins that are in your food. That takes about a couple hours, so I think your food is still probably like churning in that stomach acid, having a good time. Proteins are breaking down, that ham is breaking down. Uh, it's going to go through your small intestine into your large intestine. The large intestine is where the party really happens. I've heard that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, that's where most of the nutrients from the food are, are absorbed into your body. That um, might be the most public radio yeah. statement that's ever been made. The large intestine is where the party really happens. Yeah. Large intestine is where it's at, man. Okay, so what's happening in the large intestine? So that's where all of your nutrient absorption is happening. All the water is absorbed back in. The nutrients that are produced are absorbed. Um, bacteria also you know, they're producing things that they're breaking down when they, you know, act on your food. That gets absorbed. Um, B vitamins, K vitamins, your body can't produce those. So those are being produced by the microorganisms in your gut. And then those are being absorbed in right through the large intestine. And then all the crap, literally, that's left over comes out eventually. Really? Yeah. Uh, we're talking to I Dr. <laughs> yeah, ideally, right? <laughs> we're talking to Dr. Embriette Hyde with the American Gut Project. Um, okay. You seem fascinated with something called the fermentation movement. Ah, yeah. What's that all about? Yeah, so there's this really cool movement in the U.S. happening lately where people are just going crazy about fermented foods. Um, people are making kombucha in their house, like on their countertops. Do you know what kombucha is? Uh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> I know about kombucha because yeah. if someone makes kombucha, they are legally obligated to try to force you to drink kombucha. We're sort of at kombucha ground zero here in Portland. Why is kombucha actually so good for the gut? 
Well, the whole idea behind fermented foods, not just kombucha, is that it's a bacterial process that's breaking down the food. And so you're fermenting your foods, the bacteria is breaking down the sugars or whatever else is, is happening with whatever you're fermenting. And it produces a lot of useful things uh, for the human body. You get amino acids produced, you get antioxidants being produced. Um, you know, there's evidence that it helps aid digestion as well. I don't know why that's working and that's exactly why I'm really interested in it because I think while we understand that the process of fermentation happens because of microbes, we don't really know what consuming fermented foods is doing to the microbes that are already inside of us. And that's what I'm really curious to find out because there's clearly really positive health benefits to including fermented foods in your diet. So I'm sure that it's doing something to, your, to the community that's living inside of you, and I want to know what that is. It would, be, it would be hilarious if when the kombucha got down there, it was like, you guys got to try my kombucha. <laughs> Does that mean should we all be eating just like sauerkraut and kimchi and other fermented foods all day long? I mean, is this, should, that, should that be most of our diet then? I would not say it should be most of your diet, but it's really hard to say because people are really individual and complex. And whenever somebody asks me a question about diet and how it relates to the microbiome, I always mention a study that was published earlier this year from a group in Israel. Um, the lead author on the paper is Dr. Aaron Segal. And what they were doing was looking at 800 diabetic patients and testing their microbiomes both just to see which bacteria were there as well as kind of the products that they're producing when they're breaking down foods and then creating an algorithm that would basically predict the best diet for these people in terms of controlling their blood sugar. And what was really interesting is that in some cases, what you would think is a healthy habit, such as eating a tomato, was actually really bad for people. And ice cream was better for those people. And it just totally depended on the microbes... Yeah, Some good. excited people here at the Alberta Rose Theater. They had no idea they were health nuts. <laughs> so I, the moral of the story is it's just it's so complex. And I do think that when, not if, because I do believe it's going to happen, but when microbiome um, becomes a regular part of health, you know, mainstream health, um, it's going to be a little bit personalized. I don't think there's going to be this one-size-fits-all solution to the problem. Um, and all things in moderation. I think you're going to have some issues if you're like eating sauerkraut all day long. Yeah. Uh, Somebody I, I earlier when I said, could you eat sauerkraut all day? A person in the audience wooed and I noticed they were sitting by themselves. <laughs> that may not be a recipe for a happy relationship, even if your gutty works are just kicking. That is true. <laughs> uh, we have Dr. Embriette Hyde here from the American Gut Project, and we're talking about gut instinct this episode of the show. I'm wondering... Um, I know everybody's gut and microbiome is different, as, as you've explained, but what's, what's sort of the single worst thing that we're doing to our guts? Like, is it what we're eating? Is it that we're letting stress get to us? Is it drinking black coffee? Like, what, what are we doing wrong vis-a-vis -vis our gut? I think one of the worst things that we're doing to our microbiome now is the barrage of antibiotics that we're throwing at it. Um, antibiotics wreak havoc on, on the gut microbiome. We can sequence the microbes that are in somebody's stool uh, before they go on a round of antibiotics. We can sequence it during, and you can see a huge difference. Um, it's really noticeable. And I like to tell the story, you know, there was a... a 
microbiome study happening, and they were trying to recruit people into the study, and one of the exclusion criteria was recent antibiotic treatment. Uh, they didn't want anybody in the study who had been on antibiotics for the past six months. And so when they got the data back and they were you know, looking at it graphically, they noticed that there was one sample that just didn't match with what they expected with the rest of the samples. And they said, hmm, I wonder if that person lied to us. And uh, sure enough, that person had been on antibiotics in you know, the past couple of weeks, and they called him out on it. Wow, that person really wanted to be in a gut study. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How much were they paying people? I just don't feel like I'd lie about that. <laughs> to get into a study where they're picking through my number two. <laughs> well, so you're saying that when we take antibiotics, which so many Americans take so frequently now to sort of knock down various things, that we're, what are we doing? Are we kind of neutralizing that uh, microbiome or we're killing off part of it? Yeah, you're definitely killing off a lot of the diversity that's there. And one of the things that we do know is that a diverse microbiome that's comprised of a lot of different types of bacteria is a healthy microbiome, uh, both because it can do a lot of the things that your body needs it to do, like produce those vitamins or break down the, the food products, but also because uh, a diverse community is like a really well-rounded military system, right? You can fight off the occasional bad bacteria that you may come into contact with. And so if, when you break down that barrier and you're losing the diversity, then you open yourself up for a lot of problems. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Clostridium difficile. No, I haven't, but that sounds... C. diff. Oh, I have heard C. of C. diff. diff. Sure, yeah. yeah. As it's you know, known by the cool kids, right? Yeah. Uh, I interviewed the comedian Tig Notaro, who almost died from C. diff. Yeah, I mean, that thing is no it's joke. A, it's a really serious issue. It's, it's a single bacterium, and usually what happens is that... Um, uh, people get it after a round of antibiotics. Uh, either they've had a surgery or they've you know, been sick. They've spent some time in the hospital. Um, they take antibiotics and it wipes out their natural community and this pathogen just takes hold. Um, and it's a really awful disease. Of course, the, the gold standard treatment, which I think is changing a little bit now, is antibiotics, <laughs> which caused the problem in the first place. Um, well, why are they still doing that? Because the, mm -hmm. the people running you know, that hospital or clinic or whatever, helping this person with C. diff, they're not dumb people. They're doctors. They're presumably smart. Why do we keep turning to antibiotics when there seems to be evidence that sometimes they're not the best answer? Yeah. You know, especially with C. diff, we're, we're starting to turn away from that a little bit. So, um, What's becoming more and more common now is something called a fecal transplant. Right. I want to just, uh, I'm going to give a heads up to anybody out there in the radio audience who might be eating or planning on eating ever again. We're going to talk about fecal transplants now. Dr. Hyde, continue. It's, it's exactly what it sounds like. Um, but the idea behind it is that you are replacing your unhealthy, obliterated microbiome or what's left of it with a healthy, robust community from another person. And it's so incredibly effective. Like, it sounds gross, but as you mentioned, you know, the person you knew almost died. These people are suffering going to the bathroom, you know, dozens of times a day, diarrhea, they're incredibly dehydrated. Uh, it really is, you know, at that point, their last chance. So when you, you know, look at the cars that you have in front of you, a fecal transplant at that point doesn't look that bad. Um, Boy, we need to give some kind of award to the first person who signed up for that. <laughs> that was a brave soul. <laughs> Brave, but you know, probably they lived and had a, a, a good life after that. So there was a recent clinical trial uh, 
being done in the UK where they were testing the effectiveness of the fecal transplants. And so they had, of course, the gold standard treatment, so the antibiotic treatment, and then the fecal transplants. And the gold standard treatment antibiotics about 60% effective. The fecal transplant was over 90% effective, which is pretty much unheard of just in, in pharmaceutical industries. You never have a drug that's that effective. And they stopped the clinical trial early because they deemed it unethical to keep the people on the placebo treatment or the antibiotic treatment on that treatment, and they just gave everybody the fecal transplant. Wow, because it was that effective. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we're talking to Dr. Embriette Hyde here from the American Gut Project. I mean, are you trying to get people to send in samples? Yeah, so you actually can send poop through the mail in the U.S. quite easily. I usually get in trouble when I do that, but it... <laughs> It's nice to hear there's a, some scientific value to it as well. So it, You're it, asking the people of America to send in samples of their leave-ins. Yes, that is correct. How do they do this? So it's not as bad as it, it sounds. Um, basically, what happens is when people sign up for the project, we will give them a sampling kit, which includes a swab. I'm not going to... People, when they hear that, they're like, a swab? Where do you want me to stick that? Um, <laughs> I've got some ideas. I feel like anyone who asks, where do I stick the swab for the fecal sample should not be involved in the study. So. Should be a disqualifier immediately. Where, where you stick it is your toilet paper, actually. Ah. So it's really not invasive at all, um, which is a good thing. I don't think we would have people signed up for the project otherwise. Your line of work involves dealing with a lot of, uh, of, of fecal matter. I mean, that's just part of the job, right? Analyzing it. Does it, at this point, not gross you out at all? Uh, so if I'm not the one who actually handles this the poop in most cases, although I did fly with some poop once as my carry-on. Um, it wasn't mine, but it was for our study and it was a very precious sample. So I'm on this small regional flight and it, the box would not fit under the seat and it wouldn't fit in the overhead compartment. And I was like, dude, you guys gotta help me out. Like I cannot let this go like with the luggage. I'm gonna lose my job if something happens to this poop. Um, <laughs> so so well, that the point, was that the point where they zip tied you? And <laughs> they were so good about it. I think they gave me free wine or something. Yeah. Uh, but it had to go in the belly of the plane, so I just sat there for the whole like 45-minute flight praying for the poop. And I remember sitting there thinking how sad it is that I'm praying for poop when like there's people praying for world peace or, you know, you know <laughs> important things. Well, but, um, you know, if the research based on this sample <laughs> helps a lot of people, I think yeah. you can make the argument it was worth praying. I've prayed for way worse. Yeah, uh, we made it. It made it okay, and I got it safely into the freezer. Um, but wow, that was like the most nerve-wracking flight I ever had to take. Wow. Well, this is fascinating stuff. Good luck. Thank you for your work on it. If you see Dr. Hyde at the airport, make sure you do not pick up her bag on accident. Because <laughs> it is not going to be pretty. Dr. Embriette Hyde, thanks for coming on LiveWire. Tonight's show is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. 
who want to let you know that October is non-GMO month. They already carry more than 25,000 certified organic and 8,500 non-GMO project verified products in their store. Knowledge is power, and knowing what's in that can of chili is just good thinking. More info at WholeFoodsMarket.com. I can't say this a lot on Livewire, but our next guest spent the prime of his career crushing my dreams. As a member of the legendary Portland Trailblazer teams of the 1980s and 90s, Terry Porter always seemed to have the answers for anything my beloved Seattle Supersonics could throw at him. His NBA career spanned more than 1,200 games and included two all-star appearances and two trips to the NBA Finals. Please welcome the pride of South Division High in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Terry Porter to Livewire. Terry, welcome to Livewire. Well, thank you. Great to be here. Well, you grew up in Milwaukee, right? Correct. What was it like there growing up for you playing basketball? Like, when did you have the sense, I might be able to actually do this in the NBA? Mm. That happened, like, when I was in college, so. Wait, so you were, like, a more or less mm, normal average, a, normal uh, basketball player in high school? Yeah, that was normal. I played my freshman and sophomore year on a boys and girls club team. I never tried out for my high school team until I was at a recess at high school and the basketball coach happened to be outside watching us play and came up and said, hey, you go to school here? Yeah. He's like, why haven't you come out to the basketball team after watching me making a couple shots, I guess. So he was impressed with my skills. I want to talk a little bit about uh, 1984 when you actually tried out for the U.S. Olympic team. You were the Uh, only player to try out from your division of college, which was the NAIA. Was that super intimidating? Um, it was super scary as hell. <laughs> so, I mean, it's like Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three, and then like NAIA. And so how it all came about, I mean, I'm so f- thankful for There was a gentleman who was at the time the executive director of the NAIA nationally. He happened to watch us play. That year we made it to the national championship game and in what, Kansas what, City. And what school was this you were playing for? Stevens Point. Okay. University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point. So my junior year, for whatever reason, he, he attached his eyes on us that week as we adventured into this national championship game. And once it was over, he made numerous calls like every day to the Olympic Selective Committee and said, you guys have to have an NAIA player at the trials. It's never been done before, to my understanding. It never been invited, never been there. So they pulled my name out of a hat, I guess. So he <laughs> liked me. And uh, I went there with uh, about... 90 other guys. It was amazing. It's just and an it's amazing like experience. Michael Jordan was there. Like, who were some of the other folks? Michael Jordan, Patrick Ewing, uh, Chris Mullen, um, John Stockton, Charles Barkley. I mean, it was some big-time names. Yeah. Yeah. Just and you know punk. these guys because they're, you know, playing college basketball, presumably. You're, you're watching them. Yeah, I'm watching and- them. That's what I, tell I know them. I watch them through the TV. It's, I know them. <laughs> I was at Stevens Point. So, oh, that's North Carolina. Oh, that's Michael Jordan guy. Yeah, yeah, I know him. We're talking to Terry Porter, by the way, Portland Trailblazer, great uh, coach of uh, Portland here in the Portland area. How do you get over that, being a a guy who was kind of a late bloomer, and then you play in NAIA, and then you come to the pro level? You were drafted in the first round. Correct. Were you nervous and overwhelmed when you started out, or did you feel like you belonged in the NBA? No, I'm like anybody who, uh, you know, get to a point in their career where they, you know, they've always dreamed about it a little bit or wanted the opportunity to present itself. And then when you get in it, you're like, 
now what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> and so it was, it was just one of those things where, um, you know, there's, there's always a lot of doubt because as you go through, or as I went through the process, there was always critics in regards to, well, he came from an AI school. Can he play at the NBA level? You know, because I, I played, believe it or not, I played backup center. And um, I think there was always some question in regards to my ability to transfer my skill set to the NBA level where, you know, all of a sudden I have to kind of learn how to play a point guard position on a regular basis. So it was just some adjustment. Yeah. But you're one of the guys, a relatively short list of people yeah. who got to the National Basketball Association and stayed there and thrived. Mm -hmm. What are those players doing differently than just the bunch of people who are pretty good at basketball? Um, they're constantly working to improve their craft. Uh, there's a saying, you know, you, you make it to the league, but in order to stay to the league, you got to improve. And so that's a constant battle every year trying to add something new to your game that you didn't have before. Prime example, when I first got in the league, I'm aging myself, so um, I didn't shoot the three ball because we didn't have a three ball shot in college. I got into the league and the three point shot became something very important that I had to learn and get better at. And as the years went on, I got a lot better at it. And towards the end, and when I retired, I was known more for my three-point shot than just about anything else. So it's just something you have to understand and constantly work on. Um, you're also known for having the most made free throws without a miss in an NBA Finals game. Do you know this? No. Oh, yeah, Detroit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. What a life where you forget <laughs> that you hold the NBA record for something well, also, in the finals. You know, like life, like I also lost that series, so it's not something that comes up. Right. It's not, it's not right out there. It's like that girlfriend that you dated that everybody right. wanted, but she dropped you like the next week. You're like, that wasn't a proud moment. Right, okay. <laughs> That's fair. I don't mean to bring up a painful memory. <laughs> We have Terry Porter here, NBA legend Terry Porter. We are going to take a short break on Livewire. And then we will be back. Stay with us. Hey, it's Luke. This episode of the Livewire podcast is brought to you by, drumroll please, Livewire members. Yes, that's right. One of the ways we're able to do this show is through our League of Extraordinary Listeners. These are the fine folks who've been making recurring donations to our show. Each month, they give us a little bit of money, and we make a lot of public radio variety out of that. If you would like to join for just $5 a month recurring donation, you can join the League of Extraordinary Listeners, and you will get a cool Livewire t-shirt. I have, I have to be honest with you, probably three of these shirts. I wear them all the time. They are so comfortable. I mostly wear them around the house because they do say, Livewire with Luke Burbank. And if I were spotted walking around town with a t-shirt with my name on it, I would be mortified. You, though, don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. Give us the $5 a month, get the t-shirt, and bask in the glory of being a League of Extraordinary Listener member. You can find out more about all of this over at LiveWireRadio.org. Welcome back to LiveWire Radio. Coming to you from the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, we have NBA legend Terry Porter here whose current job is head coach at Portland here in the Portland area. Um, you're a coach. Go Pilots. Go Pilots. <laughs> you're, you played for many years. You had coaches. Now it's your job. And you've also coached in the NBA. Yep. It's your job to be the coach. What's it like from that side of things? And do you regret ever 
being a player and being like, what is this coach doing now that you're, is it like a parent, you know, like when you're a kid, you think your parents are out of their mind and then you become a parent and you're like, oh, I get what they were trying to do. It's exactly like that. <laughs> but in my case, you have 15 boys. So it's really, oh my God. I, my sense is when you were a player, the coach could just come in and just lay into the team and that was it. Throw the clipboard down and the team just did it. Yeah. That may not be how it works in 2016, right? Yeah, so that would be considered like an old style coach. Bobby Knight, you know, throw right. the chair, grab a guy by his collar, you know. And so that, that wouldn't translate too well in today's game in regards to trying to coach young men. You know, my own personal experience is just you have to reach them in a positive way, talk about the growth, where you want to see them go, how you want them to be a better player, um, talk about the culture, talk about what you're trying to get accomplished. And um, I think any kid um, today, you have to first show them that you care about them and you want them to be the best player they can be. And then they're all in. When people watch an NBA basketball game mm-hmm. and somebody misses a shot, I know this as an NBA fan, you feel like you just like this person has just ruined your life. You're so mad. I write tweets about athletes that I then have to delete the next day because they're written from a place of anger and like personal hurt over sports. Because they missed a shot? Because, or like they didn't turn the double play or whatever. What's it like to be the athlete on the other side of that? Like if you, if you miss a three pointer at the end of the game, like how do you handle that kind of stuff emotionally when idiots like me take it so seriously? Yeah. Well, I try not to listen to idiots like you really. Yeah. So, I mean, cause Guys like you have never taken a jump shot in a meaningful game before, so what would you experience and how would you know that? Well, that is definitely true, <laughs> Terry Porter. But, I mean, were, were you able to, in your playing days, just sort of block it out? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I learned a long time from my college coach. I don't read, I didn't read newspapers during the season. I really stayed away from the media, didn't try to listen to Sports Center. It's got to be weird, too, with these days for, like, your players at Portland. Like, there's so much social media. Mm, that that's an issue. It used to be, you said, well, you didn't read the newspaper, but now it's like, there's Twitter, there's Instagram, there's Snapchat, there's sports radio. There's, there's a lot. ESPN has 30 channels just by themselves. There's a lot of <laughs> a lot. speculation on sports. So it's got to be hard for these kids to block it out. Yeah. And I mean, that's something that, uh, you know, from a standpoint, again, you talk about collegiate sports. They have meetings with our compliance guy to go over all that because they got to be careful what they tweet out what they say, Instagram, whatever type of social media outlet they use or platform they use. It's a tough, it's a tough time in regards to having all the many platforms you can have and having someone speak about something that really shouldn't talk about. There's a lot of ways you can be an idiot like me. <laughs> Terry Porter, ladies and gentlemen, NBA great right here on Livewire. This week's show is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, an airline with over 800 daily departures to over 100 cities, even to tropical unalaskan lands like Costa Rica and Hawaii. And with a name like Alaska, you know their air conditioning will be on point. Alaska Airlines, fly nice. The first time I met this hour's musical guest, my gut told me that he was the coolest dude in the room. And I was right. Though, in fairness, the bar was somewhat low because we were high schoolers at church youth group. (laughs) True story. 
David Bazan's music is some of the most honest, compelling stuff I've heard, but don't take my word for it. His music has been called gorgeous by the Onion AV Club and many other places. His latest release is Blanco from Barsook Records. Please welcome my pal David Bazan to Livewire. That's Dave Bazan right here on Live Wire Radio. If you want to find out more about where Dave will be playing, you can always go to davidbazan.com. He's got a whole bunch of living room shows coming up all across the Midwest, being Illinois and Iowa and Kalamazoo, Michigan even. Anyway, go to davidbazan.com to find out more. That's going to do it for our show this week. Thank you so much for listening, and a huge thanks to our guests, Terry Porter, Nicole Byer, Dr. Embriette Hyde, and the aforementioned Dave Bazaar. This show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Alaska Airlines. Hotel accommodations generously provided by Provenance Hotels. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Laura Haddon is our producer and editor. Jason Rouse is our announcer and wrote for this week's show. We also got writing help from Pat Moran and Brooke Preston. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom and A. Walker Spring this week with Victor Nash and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our unbelievably talented technical director. Our house sound by D. Neil Blake. Big thanks to Revival Drum Shop and Carlson Audio. Our development director is Kim Bergstrom. Our operations manager is Lauren Masterson. Laura Harden is our marketing manager and our copywriter is Hannah Withers. Additional funding provided by the Maybell Clark McDonald Fund and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire is made possible by the generous support of our members. Special thanks this week to Stephen and Karen Schoenfeld. For more info about our show, head over to livewireradio.org. My name's Luke Burbank. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. R.I. Public Radio International. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, 
I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait. Actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. <laughs>